for me, I was kind of approaching it more as like the Top Gun universe, right? Rather than trying to kind of mimic the shots, it was more like this world where it's always sunset. You know, <laughs> uh, it's, it's San Diego and it's always like 630. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, a veteran naval aviator confronts his past in director Joseph Kaczynski's action drama, Top Gun Maverick. The sequel film takes us back down the highway to the danger zone as pilot Pete Maverick Mitchell, who has spent more than 30 years dodging a promotion that would ground him, is called upon to use his skills to train a detachment of graduates for a perilous special assignment. In addition to Top Gun Maverick, Mr. Kaczynski's directorial credits include the feature films Only the Brave, Oblivion, and Tron Legacy. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Kaczynski shares insight into the making of Top Gun Maverick with fellow director Jason Reitman. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. I have moderated a few of these. I've never seen even close to this size of audience in here. Mazel tov. This was, uh, this in itself is a huge success. Thank you. Wow. And they stayed. And they have masks on. You must have made a hell of a movie, man. All right. So I, uh, I saw Top Gun uh, for the first time two weeks ago. I went with my daughter. And uh, my daughter, who is a cinephile and loved the movie, movie ends, first thing she said, where was the high five? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? All right. Should we do the the there is There is a high five. No. Wait, this? There is a high five. Did I miss it? I think in the beach sequence. Did I? I think there is a double high five. Would someone else like to moderate tonight? I, (laughs) all right. I, I apologize. I thought you the high, see it twice. I thought the high five wasn't in there, and that was going to be my big okay. It's uh, subtle. It's quick. How did Top Gun come into your life? Well, the first time I was eleven years old, nineteen eighty six. If we could go day by day yes. from there, uh, yeah. So yeah, I mean, the first time I saw it, I was eleven years old in Marshalltown, Iowa, the Orpheum Theater, like classic Art Deco theater, you know, single screen. Yeah, I think like a lot of people who saw it then, it's certainly my age. It it, it made a huge impression and kind of played all summer long as movies did back then. But after that, it was Jerry Bruckheimer sending me a script in 2017. So now five years ago. And, uh, he said, take a look at this and see what you think. I read the script. I had some thoughts. I went in and met with Jerry at his office in Santa Monica, which was pretty cool, you know, to be sitting with Jerry Bruckheimer having grown up on his films. And, uh, I just talked to him for an hour about kind of some ideas I had, which he liked a lot. And he said, you know, you got to pitch this to Tom. So I said, great. Uh, He said, so we got to go to Paris where Tom is shooting Mission Impossible and we got to get you in front of him. So uh, Jerry and I flew to Paris. Um, Wait a second. I have to, I I have so many questions. Um, uh, 
Oh, I, I literally have 20 questions already from what you've just said. But what do you know going into this meeting with Tom about whether or not is he on board? Is he enthusiastic? Has he been pushing this away his entire life? Well, I didn't, I didn't really know. I mean, I had made a movie with Tom before, so I had that uh, under my belt. And I, so I, I had a great experience working with him and knew the types of things that I think would be interesting to him. Um, but when I got to Paris, I got a call from him that night and he said, Joe, it'll be great to see you tomorrow. No matter what happens, it'll just be great to catch up. Oh God. And I was like, oh my God, he doesn't want to make this movie. You know, Jerry didn't tell me that. texted me, Tom. (laughs) But he was very polite. And, but that's when I was like, okay, he's going to walk in, you know, ready to say, thank you for coming. But, you know, no, thank you. You know, um. So, uh, the next day we went to the set with uh, Jerry and I went to the set. We got about a half hour of Tom's time between setups. Chris McCory was very kind to let Tom off the set for this meeting. And, um, I just had, you know, a half hour to pitch my take, but I started with the emotional hook of the story, which was, mm-hmm. it's about you reconciling with Goose's son set against this very dangerous mission that's going to take both of you deep into enemy territory. And once I said that, I could see the wheels in his head starting to turn. And then, so I continued, I said, and, and we find Maverick at the beginning of the film is a test pilot flying a hypersonic airplane, pushing the envelope as he always does like Chuck Yeager. Mm -hmm. Um, so he's still Maverick, but, but he's alone at the beginning of this movie. And then, uh, and I said, we're going to shoot it all practical. I showed him some videos I'd found on YouTube of Navy pilots who were putting GoPro cameras on their cockpits and shooting their training sequences. And, and I said, this is what's on the internet for free. So if we can't beat this, there's no point in making the film, which he agreed a hundred percent. And then I said, I love how you leaned into his competitive side. Right. Oh, well, <laughs> like I said, I've made a movie with him before, so. Uh, when you made Oblivion, did you ever talk about Top Gun? I mean, was this a conversation that you did you already know his opinions on the movie? And I mean, what he if felt you meant? if you watch Oblivion, there's definitely a lot of Top Gun moments in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was there subliminally, and the crew T-shirt was the Top Gun logo, but it said Oblivion and it had a uh, <laughs> bubble ship on it. So, so uh, you've been campaigning for this I guess for a so. while. I wasn't. It wasn't overt because I just never thought they were ever going to make another one. Honestly, um, but then I ended the presentation with we, we can't call it Top Gun Two. We got to call it Top Gun Maverick. It's a character story. Um, And Tom kind of looked at me for a second. He looked at Jerry and uh, he pulled out his cell phone and he called the head of Paramount and said, we're going to make another Top Gun. Yeah, he he basically greenlit it there. Which is amazing to see because it's so hard to get a movie made. And and to see him be able to do that with a phone call was pretty... uh, pretty impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, That story's amazing. Uh, How did you, I mean, were you nervous about doing this? How does this compare to, I mean, you had already, you've already, you know, you had made Tron, you had picked up a franchise that people loved before, although it's a a different subset. Yeah, this is different. This is a movie that everybody loves, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. this is a movie that Tom goes around the world and no matter how far off the beaten path he is, people right. come up to him and call him Maverick. So yeah, you know, I think after he said yes and greenlit it, I was like, you know, 
I thought I was going to get a free trip to Paris and a pass. Yeah, yeah. And now, I've, now all of a sudden, I've got to, uh, I've got to, you know, follow up this. Is that this something item. that stays with you at night, though? I mean, I, I say this as someone uh, who you know directed a Ghostbusters movie recently. I mean, I thought about that. I couldn't sleep at night for three years. What? Absolutely no. The pressure was there every day, but it wasn't. It wasn't just me. I think everyone on the crew felt it. Tom felt it. Jerry felt it. We really? all. Oh, for sure. No, we all felt the weight of. Top Gun. Did anyone and, not feel it? Was there anyone who just showed up on the set hunky dory and You know what? Maybe some of the younger actors, maybe, you know, if they didn't grow up with it, I mean, Top Gun was made before some of the younger pilots were born were, were born. Basically. Had any of them never seen the original? Did anyone That's show a good up? question. I don't know if any of them would admit that. I bet some of them watched it at, you know, after the audition, what they realized the audition <laughs> was for. Um that wouldn't surprise me. But um no, we all felt the pressure. Also, I was making it with Jerry Bruckheimer and Tom Cruise. So I had Maverick, you know, which, right. um, which was amazing because, uh, you know, they, they'd been through the experience of that. They'd made so many films and we were all pushing in the same direction. But, you know, it's like one of those things, and I know it's the same on your movie. Everyone on the crew loves Top Gun. So it was this huge you know, it's thousands of people. You're all pushing together to try to make make something great. I'm going to ask a pretty broad question. You can kind of take it any direction you want. You're an extraordinary visual filmmaker. I mean, everything you've ever made is just beautiful. You know, your frames are things you want to just like print out, put up Thank on you. a wall. Uh, it's just the truth. And this film is unique in its aesthetic. It is simultaneously paying homage to not only a film, but a time of cinema, a point in the 80s that we kind of just, you can't even identify it by like words. It's just something you feel. And yet this movie also is completely modern in the way that it is shot and the way that it looks. Again, this is a very broad question, but I can't help but ask, how did you personally go about making a film that 1000% was a Top Gun film, but at the same time was one of your movies and was a new movie? That's Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a tough question. My uh, cinematographer, who I've done five movies with now, Claudio Miranda, mm. was... Uh, Yes, yeah. please. Um, I think he was, I think he did three movies with Tony Scott as a gaffer. Um, oh, interesting. So he knew Tony and I think knew some of the tricks of the the Top Gun lighting style. And and he called Jeffrey Kimball and they, they talked about it a little bit. So we, you know, we knew what gives, the, you know, what that Top Gun look was. For me, I was kind of approaching it more as like the Top Gun universe, right? Rather than trying to kind of mimic the shots, it was more like this world where it's always sunset, you know? <laughs> it's, it's San Diego and it's always like 630. Right. And, uh, and everyone's always, you know, sweaty. By the way, uh, how, do you, how do you do that? Because... Obviously, it's impossible to shoot a movie only at 630, uh, unless maybe you're Terrence Malick. I, what... How did you do that? It was a lot of scheduling uh, conversations about shooting exteriors the first two hours of the day, going into the hangar or going into the admiral's office or going to the interior of the carrier and shooting all your interior scenes in the middle of the day. And then at four o'clock, going back outside and getting those exterior shots again. So we were adamant to never shoot anything outside between like nine and 4.30, you know, um, which, you know, drives line producers crazy but 
I think it's better than what Tony used to do, which Jerry told me this story is Tony would just kind of fiddle with lights and go around the set oh. and just stall for like hours until the light was perfect. And then he'd be ready to shoot. That feels like an old school commercial move. That's yeah. like used on Marlboro commercials. Yeah. And, yeah. And no, it's a great, it's in. a great move, but we, yeah, since we, we had a lot to shoot, we, we tried to schedule our days. Um, and shooting in the fall was, you know, helpful. We, we started shooting in late September, um, and into October in San Diego. Uh, and, um, and then we just, you know, if, for instance, the shot of Maverick racing the F-18 on the runway, mm. I shot that 43 times. Are you kidding me? No. Over three different days. The first two days, the fog never lifted. Um, so I just kept going back until I had it. It was good enough to be in a Top Gun movie. And then finally, the one that's in there is like take 12 on day three. No kidding. Um, just because the sun was in the right spot. He looks so happy, by the way. Driving a motorcycle. Well, is that, that genuine happiness or is he just a character? That's, I mean, ge- that's genuine happiness. And the thing that I laugh about when I watch the movie is there's a couple parts, like when Maverick's doing the proving the mission can be flown, the two minute 15 mm-hmm. run where he's flying at 50 feet and 500 miles an hour through a canyon, which is all real. It's supposed to be this really intense sequence. There's a couple shots in there where Tom's just smiling under the mask. I know it. I can <laughs> see it in his eyes that he's having the time of his life. Even though he's supposed to be playing intensity, he's just, he's beaming. All um, right, so you just brought us something that we need to talk about. Because the, the same person color-timed both of our films. And uh, while I was color-timing Ghostbusters, I remember him saying, you got to see Top Gun. It's amazing. You know they did all the flying real. Even when you know, it's just, impo- you watch the film and it seems impossible. A, I'm curious, how did you talk to the actors about that? How did you get your insurance? Um, and... <laughs> What is the shot that the audience would never believe is actually real? What is the one you point to and go, yeah, we actually did that? I mean, I think the one that really stands out is the carrier launch. I mean, that is Tom launching off the the Theater Roosevelt uh, in an F-18 Super Hornet. And so that's real. Um, The way we went about it was, you know, it's kind of the perfect things coming together at the right time. Claudio and I had been testing this new camera called the uh, Sony Venice at the time. We had shot the first a little short film as kind of an experimental thing to try it when it was just a prototype. Uh, and then we did a commercial where uh, we used a different prototype that uh, called the Rialto where the camera splits into two pieces. So the sensor and the lens separates from the recorder oh, right, right, right. and there's a fiber optic cable that connects them. So you end up with a 6K large format IMAX quality sensor and a lens in something that's like this big, you know, small. and I thought this would be the perfect thing to fit into an F-18 cockpit to get that, you know, that shot, um, which I was thinking was that 10 mil fisheye looking right back at Tom that gets all the speed and it's the one we use on the carrier shot. Uh, Once we started meeting with the Navy, Claudio kept asking about equipment in the cockpit and was like, do you need that to fly? (laughs) And they were like, well, no, not really. So they pull that out and he'd be like, do you need that? And by the time he had asked about everything, they were able to clean out a lot of space. So we were able to fit six of these cameras Are in the cockpit. Me? No. So there's six cameras running simultaneously, all connected to one switch that the actor turns on and off by themselves. So we had four cameras facing. Who forgot the actor. to turn the camera on? Well, that's the thing. You, yeah. It, Someone did at uh, some point. You know what? They were very good about it because 
it was so that was a high look up to the sky i don't want to call you on your bullshit but yeah no no one (laughs) no there listen we had there were times where the flip the switch and five cameras would run or four cameras would run but um the actors were very first of all they knew if they didn't hit the switch they'd have to go up again um so did they not enjoy doing it was that not a tom loved every second of it (laughs) Um, (laughs) but i can't overemphasize how brutal it is to be in one of these jets if this is not something you do every day. So they're pulling six, seven, seven and a half Gs in these jets, which is seven times your body weight. And all the blood that's in your body pulls in the lower half. So you start to gray out or pass out uh, unless you're literally forcing all the blood back into your brain. And that's something that takes a lot of practice. So Tom created a three-month training course for all the actors to go through that took them from a Cessna to a aerobatic prop plane to a small jet called an L-39 to prep them for the F-18 Super Hornet. So they were all prepared. The Navy made them do underwater escape courses where they got put in a helicopter body, blindfolded, dropped in a pool, turned upside down, and they had to find their way out. It was the same course the pilots had to pass to sit in an F-18. So they did months and months of this before they could sit in the jet. Uh, And so they were very well trained and um, they were being flown by the best aviators in the world. These are Top Gun pilots flying. I liked the version in my head where Tom Cruise was actually performing all these tests on all the actors himself and flying the planes. Well, he was looking at all their progress reports every night like he literally was like the instructor and like giving them notes and tips and, and would they get a phone call from him if they oh, were not sure. like no absolutely no he was he knew that him being in the jet is one thing that would have been great but if we could get all of them to actually do their footage it just opens the whole film up you know because that third act sequence what you're seeing is you know you're seeing them all in that situation together so it was and that was experience he had from making the first film. He knew that if he just put actors in the back of these jets, their eyes would roll back in their head, they'd throw up and pass out, and that right. would be it. So um, they get a lot of credit for being able to do that. How are you watching the footage as it's happening? So what we would do is we would start with a two-hour brief in the morning with all the actors, um, all the pilots, Claudio, uh, Eddie Hamilton, the editor, Tom, and and we'd go through every storyboard. I think I did 3,800 storyboards for the movie. Every line, every piece of previs, we'd go over safety, weather. Claudio would have to guess what the stop was going to be for the camera based on the weather report. Oh, my God. And after that two-hour brief, then we would go down and we had a, a mock-up of the cockpit built out of wood. It was called the Buck. And we'd put the pilot and the actor in the back seat, and I'd run the scenes like you're rehearsing for a play for about an hour. Every line, you know, include turning the cameras on, checking your visor, sweat, Lights in the right place, terrain's correct, get ready to do the maneuver, sync with your pilot, run, turn the camera on, tap your helmet for sound, and shoot. And we would just re- rehearse this till it was muscle memory. Then they'd go up in the plane. I'd stand next to the plane with a monitor, make sure all six cameras were lined up correctly. Then they'd go off and shoot. And there was no contact. There was no radio. There was no feed. Um, they'd land an hour later. We'd take the chips, put them in the playback device and we'd all sit together all of us and watch everyone's oh footage real time and it was great because it was this like team building exercise where 
If they made a mistake, we'd point it out. Everyone would see. If they did something great, we'd all cheer. If they threw up, we'd cheer. You know, um, <laughs> it was just this collective uh, creative process, and we just did that day after day for months. Do you think you can take anything that you learned from that process into a film that didn't have that type of scenario? Like, do you think you could kind of employ your actors in a similar way, even if it wasn't in a jet like that? I mean, it's it definitely we put a lot of responsibility on them that you wouldn't think of doing, you know, giving to an actor, you know, it's like, and, and that's what I was really impressed was we really were kind of teaching them about the whole filmmaking process, right. um, which is, you know, that's Tom really. Uh, he's, you know, he's an actor who knows everybody's job on the set and it helps him do his job better. Right. Um, so yeah, I think, if I was in another situation like that, you know, whether it were, uh, you know, shooting with cars or something else, I'd feel very comfortable now handing that off. Did you ever go yourself up in the plane? I never went in the F-18 because I never did that level of training. I've got an open invitation now from the Navy to do it, which would be great. I did get to fly with Tom in his little jet and uh, we'd pull a couple G's. You really? Know? Yeah. Tom, you know, Tom would have some fun with us in the back seat. Uh, which was, which was pretty cool. How do you do sound on a movie like this? I remember watching this movie the whole time thinking, how are they getting dialogue? Uh, like how much of this is dubbed after, uh, so our sound department figured out a way to tap into the microphone and to patch into the radio in the plane. I think we also had our own custom mic taped into the, the mask itself. So we were able to get audio while we shot. But the other great thing about the mask is if we wanted to change a line oh, of dialogue, right you know, on the first movie I heard they did a lot of just counting to 10 because they didn't know what, oh, exactly, what the dialogue was what the dialogue was going to be necessarily. So they were switching <laughs> it all the time. So Tom pointed that out to all the you know actors. If you ever forget your line, just start counting to 10, you know, because at least you're saying something, we can tell you're saying something and we can put a different line in there. So it was funny every once in a while, you know, you, you, we'd be watching a take and all of a sudden someone would just go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, you know, start screaming <laughs> yeah. it, but it, it works. It's well, it's great. a lot to think about up there. Uh, how many, how many takes does an actor get? I mean, how many times can you send the plane up and do? They would fly for about an hour. That's about all you can take. And, you know, being in a jet and being able to see the horizon and go through all those maneuvers is tough. But when you have six cameras in front of you blocking the horizon, so you're, it really becomes a, a very torturous experience because you're just not getting your equilibrium. And so they would shoot until they just, you know, couldn't take it anymore sometimes and, and, and come back. But we'd usually get about, I'd say, 15 minutes of footage, 15 or 20 minutes of footage, of which usually five or 10 seconds was something that was good enough to be in the movie. So it was a very um. slow laborious process. Yeah. Where was this shot? Was this, uh, you just said San Diego. Was this all shot down there? This was shot in a variety of uh, Navy bases. We shot on the, the Teddy Roosevelt. Um, we shot on the USS Lincoln. We shot at uh, North Island, which is down San Diego. We shot at Lemoore, which is Central California, which is the biggest Navy base oh, in okay. the country. We shot up at Whidbey Island, which is where we shot the whole third act snow sequence Got it. Off the, in the Cascade Mountains of I'm Washington. I'm presuming the, the, the country is actually Canada. Yes, we're that, invading Canada in that, okay, in that scene. Yes. Uh, I'm a little uh, offended. But, yeah, sorry. Well, uh, we, we also shot in Fallon, Nevada at the real Top Gun, which is where a lot of the dogfighting and the um, 
when Maverick flies that low-level course, that is the actual Top Gun low-level training canyon that they fly in. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. What is their impression of the movie? Both during, like while they're making it, and, and then once they saw it? The first thing I did um, after coming back from Paris was I, I got a trip out to the Roosevelt and spent a couple days with naval advisors and a bunch of these aviators. So they were involved from the very beginning in just putting the whole plot of the movie together. Basically, we said to them, what is the hardest, scariest, gnarliest mission that you could ever imagine ever having to do in an F-18? Mm. And they kind of spelled out that mission. Really? Yeah. The only thing they said that we didn't do was, and you do it at night. Oh, right. So, um, but, so they were really helpful in kind of designing the mission. And then, yeah, we had an, an advisor on set every day. Obviously, we were shooting around and with the participation. I think showing the movie to the Navy was one of the most gratifying experiences to see how much they loved it. Were you scared? Uh, well, I had been getting notes from them and suggestions all the way along. So I was like, if, if you don't like something in this movie, it's, it's your fault because, you know. That's a very listen, healthy attitude. I, I listen, think I'm going to adopt I, we that really, for you know, All those switches, everything you see in there is, is accurate or as accurate as we can make it. Um, but, you know, working with them, I just have so much appreciation and gratitude and admiration for what these men and women do because they are the ultimate professionals. And when you ask about insurance, you know, of course that was the, the most, the thing that was in the forefront of my mind every night was like, what am I doing putting these actors in these jets? Like mm. this is, it looks amazing, but it's insane. But once I saw these Top Gun pilots, what they were capable of and how good they were at what they were doing, it just took all that away. I mean, they're just they really are the best of the best. And I think you see that in the movie because that's, that's them flying. Yeah. No. Uh, I'm curious about the other half. Uh, now, uh, outside of the, 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 the action, what I think also makes this movie so extraordinary is that you've captured all the other stuff that makes it a Top Gun movie. It's the joy between these characters. It's the, the romance that you pulled off in the midst of all this. Uh, what was your approach? I mean, how do you how do you enter this knowing that you're not only making again your own film here, but you have to kind of nod to the type of joy and romance that we presumed we would see in an '80s movie? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the first film, it really is a drama, um, and it's it's a drama wrapped in this kind of glossy action film. So that was the approach from the beginning. Um, it's a film about friendship, sacrifice, competition. It's not a war film. It's, it's, it's the most memorable relationship in the first film is that between Maverick and Goose. It's that friendship. This mm. notion of um, a wingman was kind of coined with that film and became something that we use, you know, in everyday life. So that, that idea, those themes were the kind of um, guiding principle of, of this film. Um, so telling Maverick's story, telling a rite of passage story of this guy in a different phase of his life um, was, was always the focus. And, uh, you know, I had some really incredible screenwriters um, working with me to help kind of flesh it all out. Can we talk about Val Kilmer's scene? Sure. That's a scene that I think um, you watch this movie 
particularly after seeing the Val documentary, which was just also uh, and just brought me to tears. And I and I knew coming in, I was like, all right, I'm I'm thinking at some point there's going to be a scene with Val. How is he going to handle this? And it was beautifully done. And that's, I would imagine, a really tricky scene to pull off when you have an actor who's already struggling to speak. What was your approach? What did you think about going into the scene? Well, we we all wanted Iceman. We knew he had to be a part of this story. Um, so it started with Jerry and I met with Val uh, at Jerry's office and brought him in and just were talking to him. And it was Val who really cracked the way for him to be in this film in an authentic way, given his health struggles. Um, so once he kind of had that idea, then we, we started working the idea of Iceman as Maverick's guardian angel in this film as, Mm. you know, basically if you take the last scene of the first film where they become friends, Mm. Iceman, you know, he was, he's the ideal Navy pilot. You know, he wins Top Gun. He's the one who's going to work his way up the ranks Mm. to the level of Pacific fleet commander. Maverick's always going to be Maverick, right? So he's always going to be getting himself into trouble only interested in flying and and never, you know, rise above captain. So this idea of Iceman being Maverick's protector um, through, you know, over the last 37 years was an idea we really liked. When it came to that scene, uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, incredible to watch because I've been a fan of Val, you know, my whole life for, for not only as Iceman, but um, Tombstone and Heat. And so to have him and Tom be reunited on this set playing these two iconic characters uh, and that scene, which had so much um, real emotion in it because the respect between them as men is, is a hundred percent there um, and as actors. And, and I think you feel that in the scene that was, that was real emotion and that hug at the end is, is, is really genuine. So it was a really uh, one of those days on set. I'll just never forget. I couldn't help while watching this film feeling as though I was watching a movie in which Tom Cruise looked in the mirror a little bit as well. Uh, This is one of my favorite things that ever happens in a movie is when you feel as though the actor genuinely has connective tissue with the character they're playing and they're using this as an opportunity to look in the mirror, ask themselves some questions and do this in a public way for the rest of us to enjoy um, and use it as our own look in the mirror to whatever you feel comfortable responding, uh, how much do you feel like this was a movie in which Tom was taking into account where he was in his own life as someone who clearly is always, you know, reaching for the beyond and attempting to do the impossible, both with his, both physically, but also with his talent. Tom is Maverick. Maverick is Tom. I mean, that's clear. And that's why, I think he held this care, this, why this film didn't get made until now. I mean, he could have made Top Gun 2 in 1987 if he wanted to, right? right. Um, but this character is so, I think, close to him, is, in, is so special. It's just why he resisted making it uh, until we had the right story. Um, but yes, I, I agree. I think it, it does, you know, a lot of the, things you see on screen, I think do reflect who Tom is as a person, and as an actor. Uh, the interesting thing is, you know, while we were waiting two years, you know, we finished this movie in 2020, 
while we're waiting two years for the film to come out, I would, you know, sit there at night going, is this movie even going to resonate, you know, when it comes out, whenever, like, are people going to care anymore? Like, is it going to get stale? And the interesting thing about now is post pandemic, I think it's Maverick holding on, you know, to, to this career as a pilot is, is become this kind of metaphor for Tom Cruise holding on to the old way of making movies. Mm. And that metaphor seems to be stronger now in 2022 than I think it would have been in 2020. Cause we all, I think have this longing to, for the way things used to be. Um, yeah. and, uh, and so in some ways it feels more relevant now than if we had released it when it was supposed to come out. Well, I will say for a room of fellow filmmakers, this is a movie that we needed and a movie that we desperately wanted. And it came into our lives and our hearts perhaps at the perfect time. So the wait was worthwhile. Uh, it's not often I get to say this to another director. I feel like you have just made your best movie yet. And yet I know you still even have better movies in you. And I can't wait to see them. Joseph Kaczynski, thank you for Top Gun and thank you thank for joining you. us Thanks, tonight. Jason. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. 